Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Always great to chat with all of you and uh, bring you some of the topics that are buried under the veneer of political correctness, under the facade of uh, truth that exists and the genuine approach to what is the, what are the issues of the day that we need to grapple with. And if we're going to come together, if we're going to be secure and advance freedom and liberty, I believe some of the issues I talk about here are, are front and center, whether it's regarding Islamic reform, free speech, medical freedom, all types of freedom starts with a conversation. So this week is no different. I'm going to talk a little bit about Iran and the feminist revolution that's happening there. And and you know what? I, I'm going to start with a, a anecdote that might seem to be just sort of this wackiness, but it, it runs to the core of how the Islamists in the West hijack the reality of freedoms and struggle for freedom that happened in Boston this week. And we'll also talk a little about what Saudi Arabia's machinations are on a diplomatic scale regarding the U.S., gas prices, Russia, Iran. What, what, what is going on with them? And last, a mosque, one of the largest mosques in Germany, has been given the green light to do the adhan, the call to prayer, loud from speakers across the city. Is that about religious freedom or what is it about? First, Let's jump back and talk a little bit about Iran. The feminists, clearly the feminists in Iran, see this as their revolution. Sparked, as I talked to you last time, by the murder, by the regime militants, the police, the clothing police in Iran of Mahsi Amini. And now what she has symbolized and what she has come to be as the um, marches in the streets continue across the country every day, thousands, hundreds upon thousands here and there. The revolution continues and the lockdown on Iranian society continues. Sima Kalavani wrote a piece this week that's in a publication called 4W Feminist News. And it's not a very well-known publication, at least in the circles I'm at. Maybe I'm... Uh, uh, I'm unaware of the nature of that publication, but uh, boy, she really hit the nail on the head. She said, women are tearing down the fascist mullah regime, but Western media is too politically correct to tell you much about it. Here's what you need to know. For more than two weeks across Iran, women-led protests have been ripping up seemingly untouchable certainties of 43 years of totalitarian hate, control, and dictatorship. Armed only with their courage, 16-year-old girls stand in front of tooled-up riot police without hijab, screaming out their anger over a life in a caged society imprisoned by criminal, sadistic mullah dictators, while the West is pathetically afraid of the regime's nuclear threats. Ordinary middle-class Iranian people have lost their fear. They've torn down the cult-like, idolatrous pictures of Khamenei and Soleimani from public 
buildings, throwing these ugly terrorists into the trash bin of history. People want revenge and justice for the murder of the young Iranian Kurdish woman, Mehsa Amini. In September in Tehran, she was brutally beaten to death by the thugs of the so-called guidance police, Gesht Irshad, a violent, misogynist, state-sponsored street gang that harasses, humiliates, and injures women every day at the behest of the dictator Ali Khamenei. Iranian people want revenge, too, for the countless other young women murdered by the state when it tried to crush dissent. These include Nika Shahkarami, 16-year-old Iranian lore girl who died after regime forces smashed her skull, and Esra Panahi, the Iranian Azeri girl who was beaten to death by intelligence officers in her high school for refusing to recite a greeting in the memory of the dead terrorist Qasem Soleimani. Across Iran, people have understood that there can be no compromises or coexistences with the so-called Islamic Republic. It is in fact neither Islamic nor a republic, but a mafia of corrupt, sadistic, amoral old men who wage war on God, on the Iranian people, and on freedom-loving people across the world. What powerful words. I mean, this is courage. This is courage. And you hear... The Islamists in America representing Muslims, supposedly. It, it really took the cake this week to hear this, so, this supposed hero, first American Muslim woman on the Boston City Council. I, I mean, I was horrified to see what she did. If I hadn't watched the video, I, I, I would not have believed that. I would have said it was too much of an insult to free-thinking people in America to think what she said and what she did in passing some new resolution that is just is beyond explanation. So listen, ladies and gentlemen, I, I, I kid you not. This, this city councilwoman, Tanya... Fernandez Anderson presented a resolution in docket for the city council to hear, which, by the way, was then passed unanimously, recognizing Mehsa Amini's birthday. So she hijacks this heroine's birthday. That entire country now is 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 seizing and and and, and standing for their rights against being forced to wear a hijab. Ms. Fernandez Anderson decides to take this birthday and recognize it as Hijab Day. I, I, I kid you not. Hijab Day. Listen. This next excerpt is from the presentation at the Boston City Council just a few days ago by Councilwoman Ferguson, who then is introduced by the chair of the council. Listen. Number 1283, Council Fernandez Anderson, offer the following. Resolution recognizing Masha Amini birthday, September 23rd, as the day of women's right to self-expression, Boston's hijab day. For the past few weeks, people of good conscience, or a month or so from around the world, have joined in protest the thousands across Iran demanding justice for Maksa Amini. These protests in the heart of Iran have featured brave women burning their scarves and cutting their hair in the face of arrest, abuse, and in some cases, even death. Unfortunately, many people have taken these protests as an opportunity to slander Islam. 
the Iranian culture for further silence the, uh, and further silence the voice of women across the world. I'd like to just take a few seconds to... Um, it's always about Islamophobia, isn't it? They're using it to slander Islam. And the lying sack, she says that she's protesting? Google it. I can't find anything where this woman is protesting anything happening. As she stands in her hijab. And now, now listen, she's now, and I, w I won't subject you to more of this than you have to, but by the way, the Boston City Council lapped it up as a bunch of ignoramuses. Ignoramuses. They lapped it up that somehow, oh, we're going to get a little lesson in hijab. What is the right hijab? Listen. Kindly show you the difference, and it'll be quick. This is called a kimar. Shout out to my Somali sisters for their kimar. Ilhan Omar. Just a simple scarf. Shout that out. It just goes over your head. And you pull it off. A shout out. Simple. A little hijab. It's just a piece of clothing, huh? Maybe a burqa. People are dying because of this. A prayer garment. This, when you see it this way, you'll call it hijab. You'll be like, oh, what's that called? A hijab? No, actually, I'm not Arab. It's just called a scarf. But for translation purposes, hijab also means veil, scarf, or protection. Protection. And then it means cover, you, you idiot. She loves to this make the words mean wherever the hell she wants the them to mean. Nikah. And it goes over here and wrap. And you'll see women covering and you'll see just their eyes. It's just basically an expression and a struggle. Anything that a we struggle. call a struggle, a sacrifice. Here now she's going to say jihad. Um, a jihad. There you a go. A sacrifice of self. Sacrifice. So that you are forced to deal with self and not your beauty or your outer appearance. ISIS and Al-Qaeda are sacrificing, I, huh? <laughs> uh, an African girl, um, or woman, I like to think, you know, I'm still young. Um, Enough. I wear... Enough. So, ladies and gentlemen, we got a lesson about hijab, niqab, all the other protections that women have. Now listen, as I've told you before, I have respect for those who believe that conservative dress and the ability to protect oneself in whatever way you want in your clothing is free choice. I'm not sure it's about religious freedom, but free choice. And I reject that has to do with religious freedom because at the end of the day, most of the use of the hijab globally is not about equality. Globally, in the massive societies of tens to hundreds of millions in which women are tribally forced to wear it by their brothers, their fathers, their uncles, and the paternal tribal structure that exists in their societies from Saudi Arabia to Pakistan to Afghanistan— and into Europe, it's all related to misogyny. It's all related to control, being told that they're vulnerable if they do not. They're vulnerable if they do not wear the hijab and wear the cover or the niqab. And somehow covering their face except their eyes is a, is a tough choice that they make. And thus it must mean they're trying, she explained to the council, somehow trying to be equal? No. That is a bastardization of the reality of what the premise of conservative dress in all orthodox communities are. 
It's about not objectifying women. Yes, and the feminists should understand that also. But where are the feminists in the West? Where are the feminists in the West that uh, are, are silent? And this woman is speaking on your behalf in Boston, who then passed it unanimously after she was done giving their little lesson on clothing and telling them they were all a bunch of bigots because they didn't understand the hijab. Somehow their recognition of it was all hunky-dory once they passed this resolution. So if we can get past it for a second, ladies and gentlemen, what happened in Boston this week on the heels of the reality of what the women in Iran are suffering as many of them are being killed, tortured, as they struggle for freedom, for individuality against the tribe, against the men in beard who see them as inhuman who would commit crimes against humanity, against the women in Iran, if they could do more than they have already. That's what's happening. So yes, every faith has its conservative interpretations that interpret a, a modest approach to dress. But the hijab, the niqab, whatever cultural term you want to give to it, and religious term especially, is about oppression. In 2022, in the 21st century, it is about oppression, and that's why the women and their brothers and men who, who love them by their side and agree with them by their side, who are their friends and not their enemies like the regime is in Iran, see it for what it is. And it's interesting, when we talk about hijab in America, it's always about the positive right. You know, in ethics and in, in principles, Kantian ethics, whichever ethics you want to talk about, there are positive rights and there are negative rights. The positive rights are the rights to do something, to speak out, to wear something, to have whatever right that you embrace of the Bill of Rights or your Constitution. The negative rights are the rights to reject something, that the government cannot impose everything on you that you then accept that ultimately you have freedom of autonomy of choice of bodily function whatever it might be of what you wear what you do and what you choose to participate in and what you choose not to participate in that's a negative right and it's interesting it's just so it's so fantastically hypocritical isn't it that the islamist in the west they talk about the positive right of hijab Oh, but they don't say anything about the negative right to reject it and to reject clothing that wraps them up like they're wearing a blanket and makes them inhuman. No. And then when they're talking about the Middle East, they again say, oh, this is the right. Oh, I love it. It's so Islamic when I go there. Everybody's wearing hijab. It's such a beautiful culture. Oh, really? Really? That's that's Islam? is a preponderance of robots who just do what the government says. No, Islam is choice. Ultimately, I believe, and as we've talked about in this program before, that God can only judge us if we make a choice to practice the various things that we consider to be pillars of faith and action or whatever they might be, if we live in a laboratory in which we can choose not to do them. So I don't, I don't even understand how the positive right of hijab is anything that God cares about if you don't live in a society where you can reject it and not wear it. 
So this is, this is amazing to me how hypocritical and duplicitous the Islamists are that they conveniently talk about rights when there are positives and they want the secular cultures to accept them and not demean them when in fact the West's demeaning of them is not a demean, is not an attempt to demean it, but rather to put it in the context of choice and not oppression, to put it in the context of true equality. We're going to talk about the mosque in Germany that now is blurring the Aden, and my point will be at that time the same thing. Is, is it really equality when things actually cause more harm to your public communication with those who are non-Muslims into your relationships and otherwise. I'm not saying that that is an excuse to delay certain rights, but I'm not sure that blaring the adhan, the call to prayer five times a day, is a, is a massive religious right that we need to have today. Let's go on with... Sima Kelevani's piece in 4W. She said, The slogans of the streets today are death to the dictator. I will kill anyone who killed my sister. And then she says that in Farsi. And we will die, but we will take Iran back from you. No matter the risks, day by day again, people come out to the streets. While Iranians have been fighting for freedom, Western media has devoted very little coverage to the struggle of Iranian women. Now, just to show you that she's truly a leftist here, she then goes on to slander Queen Elizabeth and talk about her as a war criminal in her piece. Now, I think it's fascinating that at least, at least, this is evidence of, of, of a leftist who is honest in her discussion in the West of freedom, of, of women's rights and otherwise. We can debate on the West's colonialism and what is the legacy of Queen Elizabeth, but I'm not going to go on and read from her attacks on them, but at least it shows you that the left, just as in the right, we have our own debates that we have about whether it is to be pro-life or not, immigration issues um, and the uh, legitimacy of, of the border wall and and uh, what is the right amount, if any, of immigration for, for many of us. This is a debate uh, we need to have. And there are many, many other topics. But at the end of the day, the left isn't even, I mean, this in an obscure blog is finally at least a, a feminist who I believe is of Iranian origin, I might be wrong, um, talking about the reality of what is happening. And from the reality, from the position of a feminist position of what's happening. There should be more of that because then we could create coalitions truly that come together to keep society whole. Because when we, when we want to stay whole... When we want to stay whole, we find the things that really prop up and protect the rest of society so that we can have the freedom and the oxygen to debate those other areas that divide us down the middle. But there are some bigger topics, free speech, 
equality of, of um, all the other aspects of, of property and, and uh, of work and elsewhere. You know, these are the things that I don't understand how we can't get 90% plus agreement on. And yet it's too often co-opted, co-opted by a political machinery. So what do the Islamists do? Shame on that Boston City Councilwoman. Shame on her for hijacking. I mean, if I ever, if ever there was an Islamist hijacking, I mean, the, the analogy could not be better. Of, of a woman's birthday, of, of a woman's legacy, she, her body is still warm. And the people are still revolting over the hijab and the American Islamists are passing resolution in Boston City Council to honor her birthday and call it Hijab Day. You think of the litany of metaphors that can come that are just horrific from every tyranny on the planet, from China to Nazi Germany and elsewhere, that you could find some grotesque metaphor in which something evil is happening the people reject, and the propagandists then hijack that, trying to somehow take the oxygen out and blame the West, blame others for their own plight. Classic hijabi Islamist pablum, pablum about Mahsa Amini and her legacy. Now let's talk about this mosque in Germany. Last week, Germany's fourth biggest city last year cleared the way for mosques to apply for permission for the muezzin, or the person who chants and calls loudly through speakers and the microphone, to call for a maximum five minutes between noon and 3 p.m. on Fridays. October 14th in Cologne Central Mosque in Germany, muezzin Mustafa Qadr recites the call to prayer. The Islamic call to prayer is set to sound for the first time from that mosque. It was sounded in the public for the first time from one of Germany's biggest mosques, according to Religion News. Authorities in Germany's fourth biggest city last year cleared the way for mosques to apply for permission for the Muezzin to call for a maximum five minutes between noon and 3 p.m. The call to prayer wasn't the first for Germany, but it did bring it to a particular prominent mosque. So, why am I even talking about this? Five minutes, you know, churches ring their church bells and otherwise, it's not a big deal. Now, apparently in the story, it's just once a week. So maybe I can get my head around that a little bit. If it was five times a day, like we do pray, then I, I, I can see it becoming quite annoying. And in fact, I believe a couple of years ago in Dearborn, there was a passage to allow that to happen that frequently. And it sat with me very poorly. But I will tell you that we have to be careful as American Muslims not to in any way be ashamed of who we are or what our faith is. But when the vast majority of our faith group is silent, sitting on their hands, doing nothing to counter the ideology of political Islam and the pathway towards radicalization that radicalizes most of our faith community, to then impose such a public imposition upon 
what is Western culture that we have not necessarily been heaped in religiously, I should say. Certainly ethnically we have been for quite a while, but religiously it's still slowly coming. And for the most part, it's been Islamist. It's been theocratic in its manifestations and not one that respects freedom of religion and Western separation of mosque and state. So, just a word of caution. Don't get the cart before the horse. Don't get the caboose before the engine. Whatever metaphor you want to give as we seek equality, as we seek respect, demonstrate that we are the greatest assets against radical Islam. Demonstrate that that our position in America, in the West, in Europe, in Germany is is one of humility, of thankfulness for giving us freedoms that Muslim-majority countries would not give us. And to all those naysayers that want to throw expletives at me of being a Uncle, Uncle Tom or whatever other pejorative, hateful speech that gets thrown at me, you know that's not what I'm saying. You know that it's not saying that somehow we should not be open. There's nobody more open about my faith and proud of the modernized interpretation of Islam that I was blessed to have been given from my parents and grandparents. But I'm also realistic that in order to earn respect for those around us, we must be genuine and open about the reality of what is and what is not Sharia, and what is and what is not compatible with Western society, and that Islamism is not compatible, and it's practiced by a significant plurality of Islam and the faithful. Enough said. Last, I wanted to talk to you briefly about what's going on with Saudi Arabia. I think it is important to shed a little light as we see the Saudis, you know, now basically withholding any uptick in oil production as President Biden sought what you could interpret if you're using the Trump standard of the liberal media that constantly was trying to find areas in which they could indict him. If you use that standard, he's asking a foreign government to interfere in certain policies purely intentionally to help him in the election because the, the White House, the chief of staff and other did ask that oil production be freed up for a month and then later they could slow it down. I wonder, so why a month? Well, yeah, time for the election. If only prices of oil could drop and gas could drop in the next few weeks. I'm sure they did the math and that would have an impact on the election. So talk about foreign interference. Anyways, the Saudis didn't comply. The Saudis rejected old man Biden and sent him away. Why is that? Is it because they, they want a Republican? Is it because they want a conservative? They care about our elections? I, I don't think so. That's, uh, you know, the, the Saudis have had it good and bad with either party in, in office. On both sides, it's a mixed bag for either party for them. Being the Republicans tougher on Islamism, on Wahhabism, on religious freedom, 
but and often depending on which Republican, also equally complicit when it comes to fealty to the monarchs and the mafia that is the royal family. But that's a pathology of Western establishment folks, not anything related to either party. Can't tell me that Clinton, Tom Friedman, and others in the left were were not beholden to the royal families. But having said that, the point, it's not about what's coming next. It's about the fact that MBS and the Saudi government currently in power have had it with Biden. They've had it with fealty to Iran. Their biggest threat existentially and literally and across the sea is Iran. So they're starting to look at what mechanisms can bolster their economic strength, their economic independence. And there is absolutely zero reason when at the altar of the Iranian nuclear deal and the attempt even already failed after failed after failure, the the Biden administration kept saying they wanted to resurrect the JCPOA. The nuclear discussions from the Obama era, era who at the feet at the altar of the nuclear deal basically destroyed the relationship with the Saudi government that we had for long been, and again, not that it's any better, but we had been on the Arab Sunni side of the dictatorships in the Middle East and the Shia side were on Russia's. So now Saudi says, you know what? The Abraham Accords allowed us to come closer back again to America, to Israel. And we will continue with those relationships that will protect us. And the relationship with Israel is getting stronger. And we see Bahrain and the Emirates and Morocco and others getting quite close to Israel moving forward. Normalization of relations and diplomacy. But what they have, they have absolutely no reason at all to be kind to President Biden. They, they get nothing in return for that. Nothing. So I'm not saying that, again, friendship with the likes of the Saudi regime should be binary, that we either hug militant mafiosos like MBS or we alienate them at every corner possible. But there's no doubt that the Iranian regime... Right now, the only hope we have for an anti-nuclear program is not only maximum pressure, which is gone with the Biden administration, but the internal revolution that we see continuing to brew and brew. And hopefully that will not only keep them on their heels, but cause them eventually to collapse, which would then bring forth a new era and hardly put us at risk for nuclear-armed Iran. But will we get there? Will there be time? But to say that the Saudi behavior is somehow pro-Russian, yeah, you know, well, it comes, it, it appears to be more pro-Russian than it is pro-American. But I, I, I guarantee you the history is obvious to anyone who's looked at the history in the last 50 plus years. And there is no, there is no uh, doubt that they, they, they have little fealty for the Russians, but at this point, this month, they're going to do a hat tip to them, as they did to China 
And they talked about possibly not selling oil to them under the dollar, but rather under the Chinese currency. Who knows? But that, yes, is a massive shift. Should the Saudis be trusted? I don't think so. But they certainly can be trusted a lot more than our enemies, the Iranians, the Iranian government, the Russians, the Chinese, and others. So these frenemies, if you will, that we have our problems with, we need to work with in a short-term basis. We need to look at the, the sort of regional geopolitics. And uh, as Mike Duran had in a, a good piece this week at the New York Post, he said, Iran is killing Ukrainians. Why is Biden still courting them? And that was the whole episode with the drones that were Iranian drones that were killing Ukrainians and causing war crimes. And he said, Saudi Arabia cuts oil production and the Biden says the country is siding with Russia and announces intention to reevaluate the relationship. Iran actually does side with Russia, selling the country kamikaze drones that murder Ukrainian civilians. And the White House says nothing. Iran is even doubling down. Two senior Iranian officials and two Iranian diplomats have told Reuters that Tehran has now promised to provide Moscow with surface-to-surface missiles and even more drones. But as of yet, we see no signs of serious policy reevaluation in Washington. This tendency to overlook Iranian terrorism while fixating on Saudi misdeeds, real or imagined, is a common refrain of the Biden administration. As a candidate for the presidency, Joe Biden pledged to turn Saudi Arabia into a pariah. Never said that about Iran, did he? After assuming office, he attempted to fulfill the promise by, among other things, publishing a report implicating the Saudi Crown Prince MBS in the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. But when the Iranian regime sent agents to kidnap activist Messiah Alinejad from her home in Brooklyn, the crime had no meaningful impact on the Iran policy in the Biden administration, which continued its quixotic commitment to resurrect the nuclear deal. And we talked about the rest. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the lack of character, the sheepishness, the fecklessness of the Biden administration and what happens. It's not about the Saudis trying to pick one party over the other. It's about, like any personal relationship that you have, you have to earn respect You have to treat others with respect and then demand of them what you are clearly demanding of others, but not in an imbalanced way. And all of these behaviors from the Saudis are related to them exerting power, control, and balance where the Biden administration had none. And again, I'm not defending the Saudis, but like any bully, there are bigger bullies on the block that are much worse And if we're going to navigate the regional geopolitics of the playground, that is the Middle East with hundreds of millions of lives at stake there, we need an actual commander in chief, not somebody that's out to lunch and having problems putting together sentences during press conferences. Well, we've covered a lot of territory, ladies and gentlemen. I hope that... You share this podcast with your friends. Tell them about Reform This on the Blaze 
Podcast Network. Find me on Twitter at Reform This Radio and also at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R. Next week, I'm going to be in Europe. And uh, when I get back, I'll tell you what's happening there. Um, it is an amazing gathering that uh, is happening that when it's done is going to be the launch of something amazing. And uh, stand by. You'll hear about it on this podcast and elsewhere nationally. Follow me on Twitter and uh, you will hear about it uh, right after it's done. God bless. We'll see you soon. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.